You know, knowledge is fickle at times. Uh, Take the thoughts of the well-known philosopher um, Socrates who said, to know is to know that you know nothing. That is the meaning of true knowledge. Or or there's the other philosopher Confucius who said, um, to know what you know and what you do not know, that is true knowledge. I'm not sure what I think of either of those two quotes. Um, I would say that I agree with Francis Bacon when he said this, knowledge is power. And in light of the story of King David's life, I think knowledge is courage. Last week, Matt began our new series um, that we're going to be continuing on over the next seven weeks, looking at the life of King David. Specifically, though, at how David's life relates to us and our hope to be everyday disciples. There was something very key that Matt unfleshed last week, and he, as he unpacked that from 1 Samuel chapter 16, Matt challenged us that the daily life, to be an everyday disciple, um, starts with a willingness to follow God. A willingness is defined as a state of being prepared to do something or a readiness. What's your life set up and ready to do? Does your schedule revolve around your work? You might be set up and ready to find exhaustion. You might be ready to find hurt and regret in your last days. Uh, Does your day revolve around solely your children? Now, you might be set up to be let down someday by your children. You might build a self-centeredness into that child or a sense of entitlement. Does your life revolve solely around finding a good time? You're probably set up to have some fun, but... You're also going to find some hurt. You're going to burn some bridges. And overall, there's going to be some discontentment in your life. That's what's so convicting, though, about the life of David. He was searching after God. We, we hear that in 1 Samuel 13. And then in Acts 13, there's this recalling of that as well. Right? It says, I have found, this is God, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. He was willing, and we need to have a willingness to make our lives ready and set up um, around God, every aspect of them. Now, if you were to ask the typical person um, what they know about the Scripture and what they specifically know about the life of David, they would probably list off a few of these type of stories. Maybe it's the anointing of king that we looked at last week. Maybe it's David and Goliath that we're going to be looking at this morning. If you were to ask them what they knew about David, they may tell you about David's friendship that he had with Jonathan. Or maybe it's his massive sin issue. That's the one that quickly comes to mind. Uh, The one that he was standing on the rooftop, right, and he saw Bathsheba, and that led him to have her, and then eventually led him to murder her husband. Or or maybe it's his wishy-washy legacy that's left in his son Solomon. Here's what I've come to realize through the years. The stories of the lives represented in God's word, well, they're messy. (laughs) But often the people of God's word are either known for their worst offenses or their best triumphs. Think about it. Abraham, right? Abraham was known as a faithful man, wasn't he? But he was also known uh, as the one that was willing to sleep with his wife, Hagar, uh, handmaid, right? Uh, Why don't you just sleep with her, have a child with her? He he went outside of the will of God, but he's also known for being willing to offer the promised child, Isaac, on an altar. He was a faithful man, but he had faults. 
Then there's Moses. Moses was one of the greatest leaders in, throughout Scripture, yet he was known for being weak-willed. He murdered a man. He allowed the Israelites to fall into idol worship, but he's also known for bringing the Israelites out of captivity, for parting the Red Sea, and for being the one that was handed the Ten Commandments. Then if you move along into the New Testament, you see Peter, right? Peter is known as the rock of the church, He's known as one that helped to, to lead the church um, in their early years. Yet he's also known as the disciple that was told of his denial. He was told, you're going to deny me by Jesus. And he denied his denial, but then what did he do? Well, he, he did just that. He denied Christ, not just once, but, but three times in Christ's worst of hour. Yet we also see him as the one who proclaimed the message and led thousands to salvation in the book of Acts. Or there's Paul. Paul was one of the greatest missionaries uh, for the cause of Christ. Yet he was also known as a man that murdered Christians, as one that stood watch over the stoning of a young man by the name of Stephen. But he, but he took on beatings for Christ. He stood boldly and he proclaimed the truth later on in his years. And he is known and his penmanship has helped to see too that uh, almost half of the New Testament was written. You see, as you study the scriptures, you'll often see that either these tremendous triumphs or these uh, horrendous um, acts of disobedience seem to define people in their life. But God doesn't define us by either of these things. Uh, you see, that's where the rubber meets the road. Because we believe that of ourselves. Right? We believe that we are either defined by our greatest triumphs or our worst of failures. We think we are, we are known by these things. Now, some of you, you might like that. You're like, you live in your accomplishments of old, like, man, you should have saw me back in the day. Nobody wanted to mess with me when I got on the basketball court. That's not me, okay? Um, but, uh, you did not want to mess with me on the ball court. Or, or, you know what? I had purpose when I served in the Army. I, I, I had, uh, no, nobody wanted to mess with me. I knew what I was doing with my life. I was, I was on a clear path. Some of you folks live in your trials. I've been depressed ever since this happened. When I failed my boards, when I had that child out of wedlock, when my marriage ended, I just can't get over it. Some of you live in your titles. Ah, October the 28th, that was the day I became a mom and I found my purpose, you would say. I, 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 I've worked hard. I've become the president of the company. I've led almost all of the major accomplishments. Some of you live in other, how others define you, though. My dad told me I'd never mount to a hill of beans. Here I am. Right? The names I was called as a child, well, they're seared into my conscience. They are who I am. Attic. That's what I was. That's what I am. That's what I will always be. But we're not known by these things to our God. We're not known by our greatest triumphs. We're not known by our worst failures. Actually, in the book of Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 26, it tells us this. So in Christ, Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. That's how Christ defines you. That's how God defines you, that you are children of God through faith. We need to know that we, what we are known by, and we need to know what we know. This morning, we're going to be looking at the story of David and Goliath. It's found on page uh, 227 in the Bibles in front of you. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you go ahead and turn over there with me, that would be great. And as you do that, turn your heads to the screen. We're going to watch a brief retelling of the story of David and Goliath. David was the youngest of eight brothers. His job was being a shepherd. 
which meant he spent all day in a field watching sheep eat and roll around the grass. Meanwhile, some of his brothers were off with the Israeli army, preparing for war against the Philistines. The Philistines were one of the toughest armies the people of Israel had to fight. So one day, David was taking food to his brothers because his dad asked him to. But when he got there, his brothers accused him of coming so he could watch the fight instead of the sheep. Since David knew in his heart he was just obeying his dad, he didn't mind being misunderstood. Anyway, while David was there, he saw a huge Philistine man, more than nine feet tall, step onto the field between the two armies. He was wearing a thick helmet and armor and carrying huge weapons. His name was Goliath, and he was definitely used to being the winner. David found out that Goliath had been stepping onto the field like this every morning for the past 40 days and saying, Give me a man and let us fight each other. But nobody from Israel was brave enough to fight him, even the king. Well, David didn't like that this giant was intimidating the Israelites. After all, they were God's special family. And because God was with the Israelites, they could have courage in any situation. So David, who wasn't even a soldier, told the king, I'll fight against him. Now, the king thought David was too small, but he really wanted someone to fight Goliath. So he gave in. And David knew he wasn't strong enough to beat Goliath by himself, but he believed God would be with him. So he said, the Lord will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. The king hoped David was right. He even had his own weapons and armor put on David, but they didn't fit him. David decided to go into battle in his regular clothes. That's how sure he was that God would help him. Anyway, David went to a nearby stream and chose five smooth stones to use with his slingshot. Then he walked onto the battlefield to meet the massive Goliath. When Goliath saw how wimpy David looked, he was furious. He thought he'd get to fight the Israelite's strongest warrior. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. David might have looked like a wimp, but he was actually really brave. In fact, he was so brave that when he was taking care of sheep, he fought off bears and lions. Because God helped him protect his sheep, David knew God would help him protect this special family. David said, you come at me with a sword, but I come at you with the name of the Lord Almighty. He was explaining to Goliath that God was more powerful than anything. He also added that he would feed Goliath's flesh to the birds, which made the giant even more mad. Then David took a stone, put it in the slingshot, and slung it at Goliath. Goliath didn't even get a chance to swing a sword because the stone hit him right in the forehead and sunk in deep. He face-planted straight into the ground. Nobody could believe it. Then David ran over, took hold of the giant's sword, and drew it from the sheath. He took the sword and cut off Goliath's head. David carried the head all the way back to Jerusalem. And when the Philistine army realized Goliath was dead, they started running away like a bunch of scaredy cats. The Israelites chased the Philistines, shouting loudly. They had won. God used David, who was just an average kid, to rescue his people. And that's the story of David and Goliath. Now, if you've been tracking with me, um, you might be asking, whoa, 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 wait up a minute. I thought this was all about not being known for the big moment in life, not being looked at uh, or defined by these, these types of stories. This may be the most defining story of King David's life. That doesn't make sense. 
But remember Francis Bacon, knowledge is power. Here's the deal. You see, the triumph doesn't happen without knowing what you know. And David, he knew what he knew. And I think we can learn from the life of David. We can learn how to have these type of big moments by knowing what we know and knowing how those things will define our lives. So first, I think we learn this from this story. You need to know your battle. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 3, it says this, The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So here's the scene, right? The armies of Israel, God's people, were once again faced with trouble from the Philistines, who had become, well, they had become a a thorn in the flesh for these people, in a sense. And on this occasion, they've met in the Valley of Elah. The valley is likely a small little uh, valley with a a brook running through it, maybe. Quite a peaceful scene until the armies take up camp on either side of this valley. The Israelites were the people of God, the ones who had the living God on their side. And the Philistines, well, they were a perverse group of people. Um, And here they are at this stalemate and... Day after day, Goliath is coming out. He's yelling this usual cry, send somebody to fight me. He would defy the armies of Israel and thus their God. And now we enter into the story of David, verse 20. It says, early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. I think there's something very symbolic about what's taking place. A a battle on one side sitting the people of God, the other sitting those that lived against God. The battle is symbolic of that of good versus evil. David had a similar moment when he felt this battle in his life. In in the book of Psalm, in Psalm 18, verses 4 through 5, it says, The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction, they overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snare of death confronted me. The the battle of good versus evil is raging on today. You do realize that, don't you? It's raging on in in your life. Now, often with the story like David and Goliath, the preacher will then speak to the idea of these overwhelming issues that at times can be referred to as the battles of the day, right? Addiction or depression or pride issues. But that's not, I don't think that's your battle, The New Testament calls the battle of good versus evil like this in the book of Romans in chapter 7. It says, so the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. You see, the battle is not a massive issue, it's a moment issue. Your battle is not against depression. Your battle is to wake up each day, to recognize that whatever this day brings you, it's brought you life, and that you can rejoice and be glad in it. Your battle is not against a affair or pornography. The battle is with your daily heart decisions on how you will view women. Will you treat women as God's beloved creation? Will you respect them, not only with your actions, but in your heart and in your mind? You know, the battle is not against anxiety. The battle is with your thoughts. Will you wake up 
see the troubles of the world and then internalize them, like try to to bolster yourself up and think, I'm just going to go at it. I'm going to try to fix all these issues. Or will you hand the problems to God and trust in his provision and find peace in the midst of sometimes what is chaos in your life? Your battle's not against addiction. Your battle is to wake up one day at a time and to face the problems of this world and the desire to drown those problems in some sort of substance. Will you say no to the pill today? Will you say no to the substance today? Will you say no to the friend who you know is going to bring you into those environments today? The battle is not a massive issue. It's a moment issue. And we need to live each moment of our lives surrendered to God. You have to know your battle. But second, I believe we learned this from David's life. You have to know your, you have to know your role. When I was a freshman in high school, um, I, I had kind of a floundering faith. I, I had believed as a, a sixth grade student, I had made a decision, I had been baptized, and I, I went to church really to have a good time. Um, I like to, like to laugh a lot. I like to make other people laugh. Um, so I was like the class clown of my youth group. Um, myself and another couple buddies, I remember uh, throwing pencils into the drop ceiling, which was about this high, actually, like these, and seeing how many pencils we could get stuck up in the ceiling. Don't do that, all right? Um, and get myself into trouble a lot, um, but I, I always would make other people, other people laugh. I'll never forget, I had a, a little gal, her name was Carla Littlejohn, and Carla was my, one of my youth sponsors in the youth group. She later became uh, the small group leader for my age group, and Carla came up to me the fall of my freshman year, and she had this like divine appointment moment with me. She just looked me in the eye, and she said, Evan, You may not realize it, but you have influence on other people, and you need to start using that influence to lead people. Man, that was almost 20 years ago, and I I still remember that conversation in my mind, and it's helped to direct my path through the years, to put myself in a place of leadership, to know how God has gifted me, and to know my role, and to, to lead in that role. Now, Matt shared with us last week that David was anointed as the next king of Israel, that, that David was, was going to, to lead the people of, of Israel, but at this moment, at this time, that was not yet his role. Saul was still in power. So David, well, David knows that he is best serving his role by continuing to be the shepherd that his family needed. Look in 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 14. It says, David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend to his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistines came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Now David was willing right? And his willingness was seen in his call to be king, but it's also seen in his obedience to live in the moment in the role that he was called to, to, to be the shepherd and to do what his dad had asked him to do. In 2 Timothy in chapter 4, verse 5, it says this, but you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. What's your ministry? Like, like, what's your role in this place? 
What's your role as a partner of Bethany Christian Church? What's your role as a, as a, as a Christian? If somebody was to have a divine appointment with you, like Samuel had with, with David, or like that little gal Carla, uh, my youth leader, had with me, what would they tell you? What would the challenge be to you? Would they say, you know what? You are so good with your hands. You can just fix about anything. You, you, you're, you're a great electrician. You're good with plumbing. You know how to work on cars. Man, would you use that gift to bless other people, to show them the love of Christ, and, and not to charge them an arm and a leg, but to just give them a hand up? That, that might be, be one way. What, what, would they say something like, you know what? I know you have a story of pain. I know you have a story of trial. I know your life growing up wasn't easy, but you need to start using that story. You need to start sharing. You know who that gal is at work. You know who that, that person is that, that has been broken over the last few, few months, and you could see it in their heart, and they just don't know where to turn. Would you, would you be, be willing to share your story with them? Or, you know, you, you're good with hospitality. Like, anybody could walk into your house. You could, you could not be ready at all, but they would feel welcomed and at home. Maybe you, should, maybe you should lead a small group and welcome others into your home. Or maybe you should be a part of our hospitality team here so that people feel that same way when they walk into this place. They feel warm and welcome. You've got to know your role, and you've got to serve in that role. Third, though, I believe we learned this from David. You've got to know your convictions. Millennials. <laughs> That's the term that often defines my generation. Now, what typically comes after that term, especially if you were to ask somebody that was a little bit older than myself, um, well, not always so nice. Entitled, lazy, they're moochers, they're narcissistic, they're self-centered, and more. The list could go on. And to be honest, I'll give you some of those. Um, but the one-size-fits-all mentality for generations, I think it's bad. It doesn't always work. At the same time, I say to those that fall in this generalization as millennials, um, sometimes that's fair criticism and demands change from us. I like how one young man put it, one millennial said it. He said, what people fail to realize is, with all our faults, millennials are a generation of passion. A generation that wishes to see a better world and believes that we can get there. Sure, we need to work on how much time we spend on the phone or perhaps even how often we post on social media. Yet many of us believe there has to be more to life than the accumulation of materials and wealth. We're a generation of conviction. Ah, the term conviction is defined as strong persuasion or belief. Yet I believe the theologian had it right when he said strong convictions precedes great actions. Huh. That's, that's where often at times millennials have a break. Oh, we have our convictions, but we're not willing to, to act on those convictions. Look with me at verse 26. So David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David's starting to be convicted right now. Well, he, he's already been convicted. He knows who his God is, and he knows that nobody should dare speak against his God. Verse 32. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go fight him. Here we are, right? He has a conviction, and now he's putting an action to his conviction. So, so get this. You can't act on your convictions unless you know what you are convicted of, right? For some of you, you need to figure out what is convicting you. Where's your time best spent? Is it at the plant? 
Is it in the shop? Is it out in the fields? Or is it at your home? Where are your resources best used? On toys? Providing for your children? Blessing those in need? Or on the habits that you feel that you should find a way to stop? Who is most important to you? Your, Your buddies? Your girlfriend? Your children? Your wife? Your family? What will you never let down on? What do you care about? What makes your heart beat? What makes your heart skip a beat? What's most important to you? You see, once you know your convictions, you then can act fearlessly on them. David knew his God, and he knew his conviction to honor his God. Verse 36 says, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. The uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. You need to know your convictions. As it's been said, to move ahead, you need to believe yourself, have conviction in your beliefs, and confidence to execute those beliefs. You've got to act on your convictions, but you can't do that unless you know what you are convicted of. Fourth, you need to know your strength. Do you remember the first time that mortality hit you? Like you were like, okay, I I could die here. I do. I was 24 years old, and I remember this like it was just like the pinpoint moment where I was like, oh, gosh, I'm going to die someday, right? I think that's something that a lot of young adults come to. There's some point in their their, uh, growing up that they go, oh, gosh, here's where death began to set into my mind. My wife and I had just had our, our daughter. She was about two months old. And we uh, had moved into a house recently before that, and I had a motorcycle, and I was coming around a big swooping curve, and this car came buzzing around that curve of the other direction, and I thought for that moment, in that moment, if he crosses the double yellow line and hits me on this motorcycle, I'm a goner. I'm done for. And that was the moment that mortality hit me. Mylation is the reason why we think we are invincible as teenagers, uh, it's a, a big term, and don't, uh, don't let me act like I think I know everything about this. Um, but Psychology Today recently wrote an article about this, this thing called mylation. It says, think of mylation as the insulation on the electrical wires inside of your house. Without mylation in the brain, electrical signals from neurons fail to reach their destination. The parts of our brain that mylate last are the parts that evolved most recently. These parts include our frontal lobes, which contribute most to our unique personalities and allow us to anticipate the consequences of our actions. Essentially, your frontal lobe tells you that it's a bad idea to drink alcohol and drive, or to ignore the consequences of of taking heroin. When your frontal lobe finally completes the process of mylation, they begin to work properly and you stop doing dangerous things. Most importantly, you stop feeling immortal. Now, apparently, according to these studies, mylation ends in women at about the age of 25 and men in the age of 30. And I just like seeing some light bulbs start clicking and going off in some of your heads. You're like, oh, yeah, that's why my son is doing so many crazy things these days. He got the dirt bike out and he was pulling willies. And I'm thinking, you're going to kill yourself. And he's thinking, this is awesome, right? So was mylation the reason why David went running into battle? He was a young man runs into battle against a nine-foot giant? I don't believe so. Instead, I believe David simply knew where his strength came from. 
Verse, verses 45 through 47, I believe, might be some of the most powerful verses of Scripture. It says this. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine armies to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that this is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. You see, David's focus was on, was on God's strength. David referred directly to Goliath only twice throughout these, this scripture. Throughout the story, David referred to God nine times. God thoughts outnumbered Goliath thoughts nine to two. Do you think about God's strength four times as much as you think about your weakness? You think about God's strength four times more than you think about God's weakness. I think oftentimes we look at our own weakness and we think, can't be done. But God gives us the strength to accomplish these things. Tomorrow, some of you are going to go off to work, and you know what's going to be like. You're going to go into an environment where the guys, well, the guys talk the way the guys talk, and you're going to want to talk the way the guys talk. But you're going to need the strength of God to stand and to say, you know what, no, I have some convictions here, and I'm going to, I'm going to follow those convictions. They're going to ask you to partake in certain things, and you know you shouldn't partake in them. Gals, the girls are going to gossip, and the guys are going to want you to let down your standard. But I love what the Apostle Paul said when he speaks of the armor of God. Just moments before, actually, he talks of this, this armor. He says this, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Find your, your strength in God and his mighty power. Maybe for you, it's the old body. Like, it just seems like you wake up every day and you're achy and you're sore and there's this chronic pain that you deal with and you're not sure how you're going to get through the day. And it doesn't just become physical, then it starts to wear on you mentally. Like, you're like, man, my back hurts, my shoulders hurt, and I know I've got to get this work done. I know I've got to help my wife out. I know I've got to do these things. And you're trying, trying to think, how am I going to use this, this body of mine? And you, you start to, to be worn out mentally. Maybe it's anxiety that seems to overwhelm you throughout the days. Maybe you recognize that you aren't invincible anymore, but now you just sit fearful of doing anything in your life. God can use these types of pain to bring about his glory. That's what the Apostle Paul came to know, where he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You've got to know your strength. And you've got to know that God is your strength. And finally, you need to know deliverance. And a part of knowing deliverance is knowing that there is an end, right? You know, there's something very morbid about the scene that takes place here Here's David. He has this courageous moment. He slings a stone into Goliath's head. Goliath falls, and then what happens, right? He goes and stands over the giant and takes out his sword, and he lops his head off. Hey, that, that's a quite the morbid scene. But he's finishing him off. Why? Because he knows he didn't need this beast of a problem to come rearing its head at him again. Like the bear or the lion that had attacked his sheep in the field, he had to finish him off so the problem wouldn't persist. Some of you need to take that type of advice in your life. 
You know, Jesus spoke similar to this in Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet, two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, this is obviously not literal language. There's some figurative language taking place here. But some of you need to start cutting things off in your life. Maybe you need to cut off some relationships that are built into your schedule. Maybe you need to cut off the drive past the liquor store every Friday night. Maybe you need to cut off your overtime hours, the ones that keep you far from home, and you need to say, you know what, I'm not going to continue to work overtime, 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 so that I can get a bigger check. I'm going I'm to say I'm going to cut some of those hours out so I can spend more time with my children and my wife. Maybe you need to cut off your time, the time that you sit away thinking about your day and you stew on your problems and you let these worries seem to overtake you. If you keep letting the giant breathe, the giant will eventually come back to taunt you. You need to claim your deliverance. You need to know that God has brought and can bring an end to these problems. You know, sin is our ultimate problem, right? It's the thing that's constantly throwing issues at us because ultimately that's what we need saved from. But the truth is, we have been saved from it. This issue, this problem, it's the thing that has sent the world spiraling into chaos. But it's been conquered in the light of eternity. The shepherd that surpassed David was Jesus, right? And Jesus came as our shepherd, and he's not let the giant continue to taunt us. That's what I love about the language of John 19, verse 30. As Jesus is on the cross in these moments before his death, he calls out, it is finished. I've taken care of it. I've lopped the head off of sin. It echoes through verses like 1 Corinthians 15, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't know where you're at this morning. But truth is, I think we all know that we have decisions of faith to make. Remember, it's, it's not a massive issue. It's a moment issue. And we need to constantly be looking to God for, for his strength, for his deliverance, for his power, and how he was working out those things in our lives. So if there's one thing I could tell you all this morning is this. You need to know one thing. You need to know him. You need to know Christ. And you need to walk with him on a daily basis. And for some of you this morning, you haven't been walking in that. And you need to take some time to repent of those things. And you need to say, all right, I'm, I'm solidifying myself. I'm going to remind myself of these truths. I'm going to live each day as the Lord has called me to. I'm going to know him. For others, you need to take that first step. You need to say, I'm giving my life over to the Lord. I need to be baptized. I need to come to know him as the Lord of my life. But whatever decision you're at this morning, my hope is that you don't walk out of this place without making it. Whether that's in your heart or that's making a public statement of faith or that's just praying at these steps, we want to help you take those steps of faith. So why don't we stand together? We're going to sing the song together. If you have a decision to make, I'll be over here by the cross. There'll be other ministers as well in the back of the room. Come see one of us as you make those decisions.